welcome to Radio Utopistan. Happy you tuned in again. And great you also like to hear solutions. There are so many problems, crises and catastrophes in the world right now that we tend to forget to talk about their possible solutions. And there are so many. But if we don't know them, we lose hope, get paralyzed and don't do anything anymore. So, really happy you are here. Let's look for some solutions together. Send us your ideas, people, data or stories if you want via Instagram or our website. We'll share them here on the podcast or on social media. You can also check out what we collected so far, if you haven't already. For example, we have a lady who is fighting corruption in Congo, a priest who is looking for truth, reconciliation and peace around drug-related violence in Ayotzinapa, Mexico, or a scientist looking for solutions to get the plastic out of the ocean. Check them out and maybe you find some inspiration or ideas for yourself. My name is Elisabeth Weid, I'm a journalist working on topics around nature, resources and social movements. Radio Utopistan is a non-profit organization based in Germany and connected to the world. You can become a utopista by sharing your ideas, wisdom, time and resources with us. Get connected and we tell you more. Today we'll bring you an episode rich in sounds from the Ecuadorian Amazon, from Sarayaku, at the river Bobonasa. Some 1,500 people live here, in huts made out of wood and leaves. To get there, you have to take a canoe for a few hours, or a small plane with a cheerful pilot. Or bulldozers, like the oil mining companies do in the region. But the people of Sarayaku are protecting their little paradise of green and water of birds and butterflies, tapirs and monkeys. They protect it in a very special way. Helena Gualinga is one of them. She's 20 years old and her way of fighting consists of photo shoots for lifestyle magazines, of traveling to international climate conferences and of dancing with her friends and family at traditional ceremonies. About 75,000 people watch her doing this on her Instagram channel. I had the honor of talking to her and dancing with her. In 2012, the people of Sadayaku won a landmark court case against the state of Ecuador and against an oil company that wanted to do drilling in their territory. In front of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, this was really exceptional. The people of Sadayaku are Quechua. That's one of the 14 indigenous nationalities of Ecuador. They are protecting the rainforest with their unique way of living. Kausak Sacha, they call it in Sarayaku. The living forest. This means they consider the forest a living being and themselves as part of this living organism. Animals, plants and even spirits live in community with each other. And for this community, they developed a sophisticated system of values, rituals and responsibilities to protect and nourish it. With medical plants, small-scale farming, with drones, maps, Excel sheets and with a frontier planted out of flower trees. The Amazon is under threat not only in Brazil, but also in Ecuador. This vast ecosystem is often referred to as the green lungs of the planet. It's crucial for our global climate. But it's losing more and more of its biodiversity and its capacity to capture carbon dioxide. On the other hand, 
There are also more and more studies and reports that show that indigenous knowledge is highly valuable to preserve the world's biodiversity and especially the Amazon. Indigenous people make up for only around 5% of the world's population, but they live on and take care of 80% of the world's biological diversity. And the Quechua people of Sarayaku, they have developed a very sophisticated way and a very poetic way to do that. So I was very excited, curious and also grateful to be able to visit Sarayaku because of a grant and a research on nature rights. I went with photographer Jelka Kolac. You can see some of her beautiful pictures on our Instagram. When we arrived, there was a so-called minga going on, community work and get-together. This means first all people of the collective are working together and then later they are dancing, drinking and talking together in different houses. This time the Minga was to clean and repair the paths between their community houses. It went on for three days. We also danced and drank a little. The traditional drink here is called chicha, quite alcoholic and made out of yuca manioc. On the fourth day, I talked to Helena Gualinga. She sees her task within this community in delivering the message of Kausak Sacha to the world. She lives in one of the few houses with internet in Sarayaku. We sat on the grass next to a community house. She still wore some of the traditional paint for the Minga on her face and the hands. A black t-shirt and black hot pants. I was in rubber boots. I mean, the Minga is something that we have been doing for you know, tens of, you know, hundreds of years. So it's unique to our way of, of living and our way of uh, working as a community. And I think it's a very good example of what community looks like and how we work and how we build and how we interact with each other. It's not just about, you know, making sure that we, we have our space and our, you know, environment clean. It's also about... Um, coming together and doing something together and uh, you know no one is obviously getting paid for it it's something that as a community member it's your responsibility to come and be with um, the the traditional leader that organizes the minga and then of course we have the celebrations which are drinking chicha and dancing and all of these things that are super super important that are transmitted to you know, younger generations so that we can keep up with or continue the, the work that our ancestors and, um, you know, our elders and leaders have been doing for so many years. And it's a lot of fun too. You know, it's a, a time to be with your own family and be with your own people and, um, and then also, you know, making sure that whatever needs to be fixed in the communities is done. And it's a way for us to show, like, that's a way of standing in solidarity with each other and, and working as a community. Mm -hmm. Some also told me that it's a way to demonstrate that you are here, that this is your land. Yeah, I think not just the minga, everything, the dancing, the drumming, us speaking our own language, everything is a sign of resistance. If my elders, just my uncle's generations and my grandmothers, everyone who came before us had not fought, we would not be dancing. So it's a direct result of them fighting that still allows us to dance, still allows us to drum, still allows us to sit in the rainforest and have a talk. 
in many places all of those things have been wiped out there's no more dancing no more drumming no more rainforest so for us it's everything that they protected it's it's, it's an expression of our our assistance mm-hmm. if it's too much for you we, we go yeah for i think it's, it's gonna it's rain heavier it's heavier so maybe we change yeah. places okay as you could probably hear it okay, started to rain go. heavily and we, we changed places yeah. Went to the nearby house of one of her uncles, Eriberto Gualinga, a filmmaker. They just made a documentary together, Helena of Sarayaku. We'll put some of the links to his work in the show notes. At his house, we sit in the area where guests are welcomed. It's a separate, huge hut with a roof made out of leaves and no walls. A wooden bench is built around it. Sometimes they drink Wayusa here. It's a tea made out of a medical plant and also a ritual to bring the community together, to discuss plans or problems. They tell stories to find guidance in life and in their community. In the morning that day, we were also drinking Wayusa. We were allowed to join Helena and two of their uncles drinking Wayusa. Now and here, some kids are playing in the background and the rain is still falling on the roof. Obviously, me growing up here has shaped whoever I am today and does that to everyone who's growing up here. I didn't grow up when it was the hardest times here. A lot happened before that. But I, I did grow up where the fighting kind of took place when, when the process began of going to courtrooms, organizing... I obviously don't remember because I wasn't born yet. In the years that I was growing up, that I was four or five, that when things started to happen and things started to change also. But of course the fear was always there that any day they could come because that's what had happened before. And I mean, that taught me a lot and that obviously has shaped the person I am today. And, and um You know, this morning we were drinking Wayusa, and that's also what we did there. We, you know, everything that eventually happened in Puyo or in, you know, the international court, it started with people drinking Wayusa, talking about it, strategizing while drinking Wayusa. Then, of course, we took it to the assemblies. Everyone came together, and, and, and like that, Sarayaku had a very united front. But yeah, like from, from those Wayusa mornings, that's where you learn and listen. And maybe as a child, you don't say much. Sometimes it's just something that you naturally do. Like you eat breakfast, we drink Wayusa. And sometimes our grandmothers and grandfathers tell us stories about their lives or uh, what we call Callaritimpu, which are the stories of how everything was created. So it, it really depends, you know. But every Wayusa drinking is a lesson. I think from a lot from that, the people here are what they are today. Do you remember, or is there maybe one story or two stories that always stick with you, that when you don't really know what to do, what decision to take, or something that then you remember of a character in a story or a particular story, and that's helping you to make a decision? I think um, every story has a purpose. That's one thing about the, the, the stories here. Um, you know, so there's always lessons and there's no one no one in specific, but that definitely has put the values in us that we have today. Um, not lying, not stealing and all of those things. Um, but there are also a lot of, you know, re- mutual respect with nature and the beings that are in, 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 the, rain, in, in the forest 
Um, and a lot of that is, tr is transmitted through the stories and through the talks that we have uh, with our elders. You're also traveling a lot and having talks in other countries and you see reactions on your Instagram. You said you are kind of a bridge between the two worlds. Yeah. Where are the challenges there? Where do you have the feeling that people from, from the West, like us, we just don't get it? What's that? I think it, it comes a lot from not understanding the way that we live, the life that we lead, uh, the values that we have. It's something that is so deeply rooted in who we are and where we come from that it's really under hard to understand for people from the outside, maybe. And a lot of things, um, I don't know. <laughs> for example? I'm thinking, that's yeah, a really yeah. good question. Um, I think one of the struggles, for example, with Krausak Sacha is that it's not, it's not something that is tangible for people. You you most people would say you can't prove it with science um, and you know a lot of a lot of those arguments and I personally am someone who believes a lot in science so but I think uh, the knowledges that indigenous people and, 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 and the knowledges that indigenous people possess a lot of time is not taken seriously um, and I think a lot of people would just call it even like nonsense But for us, it's something that keep us doing, keep us living here, keep us doing this work. And I think for me, what's hardest for them is it's explaining because the, the experience of living here is not something you can put in, in, into words. It's not something that you can make tangible for people. It's something that's extremely hard to transmit. So I think for me personally, that's been maybe a struggle because... Um, You know, how, how do you explain all of this to people? There's so much happening in, in the background and I think that for me has been a struggle personally. But then also, you know, more concrete things like there are a lot of stereotypes about indigenous people and a lot of expectations and a lot of prejudice too and kind of have to, you know, have to explain or, or deconstruct those concepts I've, I've met a lot uh, people expecting us to you know be dressed from head to toe in, in feathers for example or painting us all day you know I'm painted now because we had festivities ce celebrations but I would normally not be painted if I didn't have anything to paint myself for and and kind of people wanting to put us in one box and we are extremely diverse not just the nationality, the, not just the indigenous nations within our own country or with other countries, but just within this community, there is so much diversity of people and of beliefs and of, you know, and of opinions. That does not mean that we don't have a united front. That does not mean that we're not, um, that we're not united, but that does mean that there is diversity in our unity. Helena herself is a counterexample of many of those prejudices. She grew up in different worlds and unites different spaces. That means she needs to deconstruct a lot of those prejudices. But that's also what allows her to build bridges between those worlds and spaces she told us before during the Minga. My dad is from Sweden and my mom is from this community. He's a Finno-Swede or Finland-Swede, so I partly grew up in Finland. So I went to school in Finland from the age of seven or eight, but I always returned here 
Um, it could be from three months up to six months per year. So I spent half of my time here and half of my time there. And I didn't learn English in school, actually. I just learned English by reading and watching things on the internet and talking to people. But obviously, definitely did help for me to later learn how to write and, and things like that in English. And I think the the fact that I was growing up in Europe in an extremely privileged uh, society with access to really, really good education, but still, you know, feeling that I was not home and, you know, still feeling that I, I should be here, especially when the things were happening here and my community was under threat. I had a lot of fear of going back and losing it. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I started to tell people about what was happening here. And then later... As I grew older, I think I was around 12 or something like that, I realized the connection with my home, the fossil fuel industry, and climate change. And with those three things connected, I really felt that I needed to do something because the same people, not the same, the same industry that was trying to destroy my home was also destroying the entire planet eventually. Do you have a question you would rather not have to listen to anymore? Uh, people would not ask you anymore? You know, a lot of the, the questioning of our lifestyle bothers me sometimes. And, and I think, for example, people saying that, well, if you protect nature, why do you hunt, for example? And for us, hunting is something that sustains the rainforest. It's something that keeps us here and allows us, makes it makes it possible for us to keep defending the rainforest. That's the way of living in the rainforest. And, and maybe those things are really hard to understand if you, have, you don't know this reality. So kind of those questioning, questioning the, the life that we lead and trying to make it look like that we are contradicting ourselves because we are not. And there are many examples of it. One is, you know, us eating meat. One is us using cell phones, for example. Like, if you're indigenous, you should not use a cell phone. Which sounds silly, you know, but that's something that we are met with a lot. And, and your own identity can even be questioned. And that has a lot to do with racism, too, um, and, and discrimination. And, and that happens both in Ecuador and in an international level as well. You have the feeling that it's changing? that there's more awareness and more real interest and respect, or not really? There is definitely more real, real interest and more respect, but there still those, we still have those issues. And I think um, those are things that slowly change. And they only change if people do something about it, right? What would be your utopia? Like if you could create the, the perfect way we are living and understanding each other on this planet I think that you know just in general the way that people want to benefit and benefit of exploitation needs to end and I think that comes from a mindset of we can exploit everything to only benefit the human and I think if that was eradicated I think a lot of things would change there would be much more compassion empathy and respect and respect not just to to each other but also respect to the natural world which means no no oil exploration no mining all of these things that are damaging our homes right now
How do you think we could get there? How? <laughs> wow. Like on, on an institutional level, because you've been to the talks in Glasgow and to, to other talks, is, is that because you have hope that politicians really will take actions? Or is that because you have hope that like civil society listens to you there and maybe gets the message? Where, where, where's your biggest hope? How can that change? Or how can we go get to that utopia? Mm. You reminded me of one question that I get a lot and that I really don't know how to answer, which is, are you optimistic or pessimistic? And about, are you hopeful or are you not hopeful? Uh, when it comes to climate change, when it comes to the Amazon. And what I usually say is that I do believe in what my people have been fighting for. Sarayaku is a great example of what a victory looks like, but you have to work for that victory. So it's not about hope. It's not about... It's not about being optimistic or pessimistic. It's about doing the right work and having a, a goal, which is for us to save our territories and to eventually, you know, end the oil drilling in Ecuador. And, you know, hopefully that would happen on an international level as well, which would then curb climate change, for example. It's a big struggle and it costs a lot of energy. And because we all just have a certain amount of energy... I was asking in the direction, like, where do you see the biggest chances? Where is it worth to put your energy? Or can you not really say that? Do you have to spread it everywhere? I don't think that we're gonna convince everyone on this planet that's just not happening. It's, it's not even necessary to convince every single person. But we do need to have people like here and people in power, some very specific people in power, to be convinced. You know, you can do a lot in civil society, you can do things within politics, and I personally am still finding my way in those things. And it's hard for me also to know where to put my my time and what I should do, because there's so much to do. Like, where do you even begin? I think it's really important to be in spaces like COP. I think it's really important to be in the, the summits where people are, you know, making all of these decisions. But that's not everything. You know, you have to be able to balance those things. And where is where is it important that people hear about the Amazonian people um, and our fights? Because I do believe that hearing our stories and hearing our testimonies, that people will change their minds. Can you tell us a little bit about the role of the women here in Sarayaku? I mean, the women here have been fundamental in the fight against the oil companies and, and is, are the pillars of, of, of the society that we have here. The women were the ones kind of pushing for, for all of this to happen. And that is something that needs to be recognized. Can you explain a bit more? Well, everyone in the community attends the assembly where we make our decisions. And from what I've heard and from what everyone tells us, from when the oil companies came here, the women were the ones that stood up and actually said no first. And they were the ones to push the leaders here to say no to the oil companies and, and uh, work together with the leaders to say no. Um, and it has a lot to do with the women here being the ones that uphold the household and being with the children, etc., um, and a lot of the worries that they had were how are we going to raise our children when our, when our forest is dead. Even though they did not have the leader positions in the community which are elected, they did tell the leaders what to do, which is a way of also 
you know, participating in, mm-hmm. in, in our fight. And how was that when you were developing the contract or the, the, the laws of the Kausak Satcha? Kausak Satcha for, for me is, is recognizing that the forest is living. I think this part is really hard for people to understand, like how is the forest living? And we do believe that, you know, everything in the forest has its own being and its own spirit, the rivers, the waterfalls, the mountains and and that's where why we live in, in a mutual respect with nature because they are beings as we are beings we're human beings and they're beings from the forest and that's one more reason for the forest to have rights for nature to have rights so for example when there are human right violations there are sanctions there will be consequences if you violate another person's rights And that's how it should be with nature too, because there is a limit of how much harm you can do to some, something or so, and someone. What Kausak Sacha, the, the declaration, the purpose of, of, of the proposal is seeking the legal recognition of our territories as living beings, which would mean that they then would have rights and we would be able to protect it with that legally. So what we have done here is translate our beliefs and the wisdom that our elders have passed to us into a legal proposal so that, that we, with that, are able to protect our territories. And is it helping that Ecuador is, at least on paper in its constitution, a plurinational state and has Pachamama written in its preamble and has um, nature as a legal entity in the constitution or is that just words on paper? I think it's important that it's there. That's at least one step. But it's one step of so many. So there is a long way of that actually being reflected in in reality. Because just a couple of days ago they announced that uh, they just found oil in another part of the Amazon. That will help uh, the new government to produce, to double the production of oil per day. And if that is happening, and with that saying in the Constitution, they're not respecting the Constitution. But there are many oil projects that are happening in Ecuador right now. One is in this province, right outside Puyo, uh, just like maybe 30 minutes in a car. One of the most beautiful places that, that we have here in the Amazon. And, you know, the president of this country just announced, at COP actually, announced a marine reserve around the Galapagos Islands, which is extremely important, and we really need to protect the, the Galapagos Islands. But him announcing it at COP, at the climate conference, saying that Ecuador is going to contribute with an extremely good, you know, something really, really good for the world, is him kind of greenwashing his politics, is him hiding his agenda, which is extremely extractivist, which directly targets the Amazon and, and indigenous people, And right now, people in the world are applauding him for announcing this, for protecting the Galapagos Islands. And I would too, if he was not damaging, if not he, but if his government was not damaging the Amazon. In a point in, in time when climate change is becoming so, so dangerous, we're coming to a point of no return. There is no space for more, more oil exploration. You know, that's, that's just really important for people to know that the, the current government is, has a very, very extractivistic agenda. That's what their entire, like, entire 
economy is going to be based on and really hard times are coming for the Amazon. And is there maybe one or two things people listening to that could do in their daily life to support that idea and your utopia and Kausak Satcha? Um, I think one of the most important things for us has been international solidarity and, and now that is a little bit easier through social media and stuff. But definitely just be open to what is happening down here because one of our struggles years ago was that no one was listening and no one was seeing. When no one is seeing our stories and what happened to us, we're, we're, not, we're being untold. Uh, it was like covered up, no one could see and it had not happened because no one was watching. So we need more people watching. You have heard it now, and you can see it with your own eyes if you want. Sadayaku also offers ecotourism. You can stay in a hut with a roof made out of leaves and go on hikes and canoe tours in the rainforest. And when you ask kindly, maybe you can join them for a Vayusa morning or other things. They say sustainable tourism is another way to preserve the rainforest. The Amazon and all the other remaining rainforests will be crucial in fighting climate change and the extinction of species. The latest report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says we will most likely not be able to stay below the 1.5 degree limit only if we reduce CO2 emissions by 43% by 2030. This means we have to reduce them by almost half in less than a decade. However, they are still increasing instead of decreasing. So 1.5 seems pretty utopian, hmm? but possible. The three most effective ways to get to that utopia, IPCC says solar energy, wind power and less deforestation. So there lies power within healthy ecosystems and biodiversity. They have absorbed 55% of man-made CO2 within the last 10 years, on land and in the oceans. So, more biodiversity means more absorption. Seems the world could learn some serious things from the people of Sarayaku and their Kausak Satcha, hmm? And it seems some people have already. Just one week after that interview, the highest court of Ecuador made a historic decision. Indigenous people must have a far stronger say over oil, mining and other extractive projects that affect their territory. Quote, Under no circumstances can a project be carried out that generates excessive sacrifices to the collective rights of communities and nature. End quote. It's words on paper, but yeah, at least it's words on paper. The words in the Ecuadorian constitution are especially beautiful regarding nature. It's the only constitution in the world, so far, that gives nature rights as a legal subject, not as an object. And that changes a lot. Taken seriously, it could change everything. More about this some other time. For here and now, one crucial phrase of the Constitution, Article 71, quote, Nature, or Pachamama, where life is reproduced and occurs, has the right to integral respect for its existence and for the maintenance and regeneration of its life cycles, structure, functions and evolutionary process, end quote. 
The people of Sarayaku, for me, are a living example for those words. I was pretty impressed by their rituals and tasks and overall solidarity. And of course, it is not paradise on earth. I have also seen some disagreements and inequalities, but it seems at least they talk about it and try to find solutions. So, what do you think? What could be learned from Sarayaku? Tell us and thank you so much for listening. We love hearing from you. If you liked it, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends, family and flatmates. My name is Elisabeth White, Radio Utopistan team for this episode are editor and executive producer Charlotte Horn and Christina Fimulbust, music Robert Pilgrim, studio recording Andres Galassa. I leave you with some sounds of Sarayaku. Bye bye. We are in school here. It's the national anthem of Ecuador sang in Quechua. Un aplauso. Un aplauso. Un aplauso.